Good morning, everybody. Welcome to back to Leviticus class. I should have came up with a, like a cool title. Holy to the Lord, Leviticus class. I'm going to draw a picture. Yeah. Yes. I haven't totally decided how I'm going to draw my picture, but I'm about to commit and put something on there. <laughs> All right, today as we continue on in Leviticus 16, I think it was three weeks ago that I said that I was going to hand out a handout about praying for your pastors and the sermon, and Brother Brown, Jordan Brown, is going to hand that out if you didn't get one. He's going to grab those and uh, make sure that you all uh, have one. Thank you for your help with that, Jordan. Uh, if he doesn't get one to you, they're just back there on that, that chair back there behind McKenna, but don't look at her. She's bashful, but they're back there behind her on a chair by the door. The title, what is my title for my message today? I have a bunch of different ones. I think the one that I committed to that's going on the internet machine is the one that I'm about to write down. Title is the death of death in the day of atonements with an S. That's how it gets referred to in the Hebrew Bible. You think of it, you probably know Yom Kippur. That's actually Ha Yom Ha Kipparim. That's in the plural because there's multiple atonements. There's an atonement for the priest. And then the place that he goes into and for the people as well. So it's atonements. But we'll just call it the Day of Atonement so we don't mess up how we talk about this particular thing. But I bring it up with an S this time so you think about there's multiple things that happen and are atoned for. And this is Leviticus 16. We get to look at just one chapter today, which is a monumental chapter in the Torah. This is the book of Moses. It's at the center of the book of Moses, and it's the central point. You know, everything's moving up to this day of atonement, and it's going to move out from that day. And if you're familiar with how the Hebrew Bible works, it has three pieces to it. There's the Torah or the law, we call it the law. The other piece is the prophets and the writings. So when Jesus talked about his Bible, that's what he's talking about when he says the law and the prophets and the writings is he's referring to these three major sections of Hebrew scripture. 
And in the center of the Torah, as we've mentioned, is Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. In the center of the prophets is Isaiah 53, right? Which is also about the Day of Atonement and the high priest who is the suffering servant who accomplishes that thing. And Isaiah 53 is actually the, the literary center of the entire Hebrew Bible, and it ends up being the central point of the entire New Testament. It doesn't get quoted often in the New Testament, but it's the most alluded to text in the New Testament. I bring all of that up to say that this is central. This is important. You know, it was stuck in the middle, in, in, in the center of so many things because of its important. It is the day, it is the death of death in the day of atonements. And let's look at this text together. If you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Leviticus chapter 16. I want to pick up on some key ideas that we find in this chapter just as we begin looking at it together. So right here in the first two verses, we read, Now Yahweh spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they came near the presence of Yahweh and died. So what do you think is one major thing that's being emphasized right here? Death and died. You know, this is a problem. Uh, and this is all happening on the same day that uh, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, died. So you see, there's death is a problem. But there's also something to, well, how did this become a problem? Well, it was when Yahweh's presence showed up in his dwelling place, and men tried to enter it their own way. They didn't try to enter it the way that Yahweh commanded, but by doing it their own way. So death is going to be one problem that we're going to discuss throughout this chapter. Second verse says, And Yahweh said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, so that he will not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So now you see death is a problem. You can't approach God however you want. You, you have to approach him in relation to the mercy seat, which is, uh, this is uh, our word, you know, kippur, you know, in Yom Kippur, that's the word atonement. You know, it's the mercy seat is the atonement place. And I bring that up so when you read the word mercy seat or the word atonement so that, you know, these things are associated together. So now we're seeing the big ideas here are death, 
How do you deal with the death problem? Atonement. Atonement is the answer to the death problem. These are the two major things that we're looking at in chapter 16 is death and atonement, which is how death dies by death being used against itself. Now, coming up to this mountain peak in Scripture involves understanding the mountain men of Scripture. And the first mountain man in the Bible is Adam. He lived on top of a mountain in a place, and in a place on top of that mountain, God put a garden called the Garden of Eden or the Garden of Delight. It was the mountain of God as Isaiah and Ezekiel would talk about this place. And somehow I'm going to draw all this stuff. So, and we have to fit a bunch of mountains on here. So, first mountain guy is Adam. And when Adam was made, he was created, and we read about this particular day, we read that everything in God's creation lived and enjoyed God's, starts with an R, rest, but then, you know, Adam fell. That's what we talk about in the fall. He falls, you know, down the mountain, out of God's rest, and into death. Let's put death over here and spell it correctly. And who wants to guess who the next mountain man is? He landed in an ark on top of the mountains of Ararat. His name was Noah, which means rest. So he's tied to this just as a reminder that man can ascend to God's mountain and enter back into his rest, but death is still a problem. But when we start to read about Noah, we read that he found grace in the eyes of Yahweh, and he was a what kind of man? Righteous. Noah was a righteous man, and righteousness gets defined as trusting and obeying God. Sometimes we misread this word as it means that you're perfect. Uh, Noah was not a perfect man. You might remember that he was also a, a gardener like his great, 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 great grandfather, Adam, and he also misused the fruit. And there's something that's building in Scripture that we're going to talk about that we've mentioned a few times in which there's many atoms throughout the Bible. Who knows what the word Adam means? Man, yeah, man. And 
in Genesis 3.15 when God makes this promise that there's going to be this seed that's born from a woman who's going to be a man who's going to crush the head of the serpent. The only man that's on the planet when this promise is made is Adam. So there's a direct parallel that's made to Adam. It's going to be like this guy, but instead of bringing everybody into death, he's going to bring everybody into life. So from that point in the Bible, everybody's wondering, who is that guy? So when we get to Noah, his dad, Lamech, thinks it's Noah. He says, this is going to be the guy who's going to give us rest from our laborsome toil. You know, this is uh, the Adam, the man, the representative who brings us back in to rest, which was a wonderful profession of faith for the man to make, but Noah was going to let him down. He wasn't going to be that guy. And we're not going to, I'm not going to explain all of these little valleys right here along the way, but they have to do with Sheol in the Bible, the place of death. I'll let you fill that in another time. But we want to focus on the mountain men here. So we go from, you know, the waters being separated from the waters in the beginning of creation. We go up to the mountain peak with Adam in the day of rest. He falls down the mountain. Death comes into the world. We found out there's people who can escape the death problem. The great-great-grandfather of Noah, his name was Enoch. He walked with God and was taken by him. And Noah also walked with God, and he was righteous. But, again, man comes down the mountain, and we find another man living down here in a place, Ur of the Chaldees, within Babylon. This guy gets saved out of Babylon, and this man, who was a pagan worshiper in Babylon, who gets saved out of there. His name is Yeah, it was Abram. Gets changed to Abram because he would be the father of a multitude of nations. And he goes up a mount and he takes his son, his only son, to the almost sacrifice of Isaac. But what did God provide for Isaac? A substitute, a ram of all things. So Mount Moriah is the mount where God sees the need to resolve the death problem, and he provides a substitute. He provides a solution, but the solution to the death problem is something else dies in your place. They come back down that mountain, and later, well, his descendants descend down that mountain into another Sheol sort of place, which is Egypt. This is a death place, not a good place. But out of that place, God brings up next mountain man, Moses. What mount is this? Yeah, Mount Sinai. It's the, the ministry of death. You try to approach this thing and you die. It's an instructive ministry that God gives 
through this man, and he goes up the mountain. Nobody else can go up it. Uh, he comes down, and the people go out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they get a picture that God uses as a way to teach them. He taught them in a way that they would understand. This is the tabernacle here. And when the people would look at the tabernacle, it would remind them of what place? It would remind them of Eden. It would remind them of going back to this mountain. It's like we can't go up that mountain over there where Moses instructs us about the death that we deserve. But the tabernacle reminds us that we can go back to that mountain where Eden was and have that relationship like Adam had before death. That there can be another Adam who comes and doesn't bring us into death, but he brings us in to life. This isn't all going to fit on this board. I need a bigger one. So this is the mountaintop right here, the tabernacle. I should have oriented it this way, but I got to run it this way because what's going to be important here as we read through Leviticus 16 are these cardinal directions east and west. Because you remember, every time somebody moves east in the Bible, it's always bad, every time. First they get that you know, man gets booted east out of Eden, and then you have Cain. He goes further east, and he builds the city of man. Then after the whole thing with Noah, people go east, and they build Babylon. It's like, stop moving east, go west, which is going to be instructive for understanding you know, the way back to God, which is going to be west toward Eden, which is represented here by the tabernacle. So this is about, you know, how can man ascend to the mount of God? How can he go back up there and not die? Well, he has to go God's way. He can't go another, which we have seen that that has been an issue with Nadab and Abihu in this teaching model, they messed up what the teaching model would look like by going in, by using the stuff that they were told to worship with, like incense and the censers and stuff that they carried it, but they did it wrong. They didn't do it, you know, at the right time and the right way, and so God killed them to emphasize that he will be treated as holy, which after this event, then the priest and people become intensely interested in understanding what is holy and what is profane, what is clean and unclean. We need to know this so that we will not die. So God graciously shepherds these people by giving them instructions that teach them to discern what is holy, what is profane, what is clean and what is unclean, which we talked about last week. And this is the height of that instruction as we come to chapter 16 because the question is, well, 
but how, how can you be made clean? We get what holy and clean is per the instructions now, but how can we be that because we know that we're not that? You know, we, we should all be cooked like Nadab and Abihu, but how does that not happen to you? Because we get that God's here, He's dwelling with us, that we can have this relationship with Him back like it was in the mountain of God in the Garden of Eden, but we don't want to die like Nadab and Abihu. So how is this going to work? You could think of this section of Scripture in Leviticus 16 with the high priest coming together to carry out this act of he's going to make some different sacrifices. There's going to be two goats, a bull, and a ram. And all of this is a drama that's being put on to, to teach the sons of Israel how atonement works. Now, the, the drama that's being put on doesn't accomplish the forgiveness of sins, but it teaches how it's done. So this is like VBS for the sons of Israel. And a skit is put on for them once a year that shows them this is how salvation works. The gospel ministers all get together and they say, this is the gospel message. This is how salvation works. This is how atonement works. Uh, we're going to explain it through some animal sacrifices and some different things that happen within this teaching model. So, looking at this, see the, the high priest, before he can carry out this divine drama and teaching here, he has to get his own act together. But you see this starting in verse 3, and let's read that together. We're going to read verses 3 to 10. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body. And he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall bring near the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he may make atonement for himself and for his household. Then he shall take the two goats and present them before Yahweh at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall bring near the goat on which the lot for Yahweh fell, and he shall offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make atonement upon it, to send it out into the wilderness as the scapegoat. So this section here begins with Aaron. He makes an offering for himself. There's an atonement for the high priest, which shows he needs what everybody else needs. You know, he's a picture of what everybody in Israel needs. And 
What everybody in Israel needs is what everybody on the whole planet needs. And you know how we had talked about how Israel's worship was not only a discipleship teaching model for them, but it was also an evangelism gospel tract for the world to show everybody needs to learn this atonement. Everybody needs this atoning forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with how in Hebrews it talks about that Christ is different than high priest Aaron because he doesn't need to do what? He doesn't need to make atonement for his sins because he's the reality of what the teaching model was all about. He doesn't need what was taught in the model. He is the thing that accomplishes everything that's taught in the gospel tract of Israel's worship. And you know, remember the sin offering, as we've talked about it, is a, it's a purification offering. It's a thing that makes somebody holy and clean. But he's also to come with a burnt offering, and who remembers what the burnt offering, the significance of the burnt offering was. Dedication, you know, it has to do with dedication. And you think about with the burnt offering, the smoke goes which way? Up. So, so this is the idea of, you know, who, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? The person that their sins have been purified out of their lives, that person their life can be totally consumed and burnt up to ascend to the Lord's presence. But this priest in the teaching model, he has to have holy clothing. Why do you think that that's significant? That's to teach about, you know, the high priest that's to come. He's holy. He's unblemished. He's spotless and absolutely everything that that he is, and that'll be mandatory for atonement. It's like the, the high priest and the sacrifice have to be spotless and blameless. So when you see a high priest who is the sacrifice, who is spotless and blameless, you know this is the one who fulfills what Moses wrote about. And we know how God has provided a picture of this and when he clothed Adam and Eve. He sacrificed some animal and he provided for them clothing. It wasn't a clothing that they would come up for themselves to cover their sins, but it would be something that God would provide to clothe them. He would give them robes of righteousness. And this would be not only for Adam, but also for his household. What you see the priest, his his work extends beyond himself. In verse 5, he takes this offering from the sons of Israel, and there's two male goats for a sin offering. So this isn't two offerings, but it's two goats, which represent two aspects of this one sin offering. This is where we're going to get an expansion of understanding this idea of atonement. And it leads to the one ram for a burnt offering. So there's going to be an atonement, purification, sin offering, which is going to lead to a person ascending the mount of God and being dedicated to him and being united to him. And Aaron first has to deal with his own sin being purified, and then it 
extends out to his household also. So how is this atonement going to work? That's what's taught with the two goats. There's two aspects of this one sacrifice that are laid out here. You see this in verse 8. Aaron, he casts lots for the two goats. There's one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for the scapegoat. Some of you, you'll see in your Bible translations, uh, Azalel, which either it can refer to the place where the goat goes, which is wilderness, or it's describing the goat because the word means the, the goat that goes out. So some people, sometimes you'll see it in your Bible translated as a proper name because they're putting it in contrast to Yahweh. Say, one's for Yahweh, so this other one must be a proper name, so we'll put a capital A on it, you know, Azalel. But the name uh, means you know, the goat that is put out, and we're just going to call it the get-out goat. And So we're going to have two goats. One is the get-in goat. That's the one that goes for Yahweh, and it goes in this way toward the tabernacle. So you see this in this concept of atonement. You have a get-in goat and a get-out goat. The get-in goat goes west, and it's the thing that connects you into God's dwelling place. It's the thing that connects you to fellowship with him because this, your sin has been purified out of your life. You've been cleansed. So it's like, so what happens with your sin then? Get-out goat. It goes east. We'll leave it at that for now. Any questions on that? Is this making sense so far? Get in goat, get out goat, near goat, far goat. And Aaron, he brings near, the near goat, and which this goat, it represents what we sometimes refer to as propitiation. It's the thing that uh, satisfies God's wrath toward sin, and it's offered up as a sin offering to cleanse the sinner. But the other goat, called the scapegoat by William Tyndale, which we have preserved in some of our English translations, was his way of trying to conceive of the get-out goat. It's the scapegoat. The, the sins go on that goat, and then they go away far, far away, never to be seen again. They're gone. In theology, we refer to this as expiation. You know, it's the, the, the exiting of sin. It's going away. So we have propitiation, which is the satisfying of God, God's wrath, bringing you into a holy, clean status and condition, and expiation, which is your sin goes away, all the way away, and it, it never comes back. It's... Uh, Maybe an easier E word is elimination. And verse 10, at the end of it, it says, send it out into the wilderness. So this is, if you think about the whole mountain picture, it's to go down and out in the wilderness, which represents the place of death, Sheol in the Bible. Get it out here. Get it gone. Throw it into the bottom of the waters, never to be seen again. Now, picking up in verse 11, we see this divine drama of the death of death acted out. And this is the point of 
the day of atonement, and that it's a reset day. At the beginning of a new year, the resets everything back into the model as it ought to be. It's a picture of God is going to reset everything to where it's going to be in his rest forever. In a way, what's going to happen, it's a reset to the tabernacle taking over everything on the planet until everything is tabernacle. Let's start reading about this divine drama being acted out and things being reset in verse 11. Then Aaron shall bring near the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and he shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire upon the altar before Yahweh, and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense, and bring it inside the veil, the right way where you don't die doing it. But notice where he's starting at. He's starting inside the veil, which there's smoke from the incense, so he can't see what's going on in there. But this is where the, the drama starts. Uh, I'll just go ahead and mention here, you, if this is the Garden of Eden, who's missing in the Garden of Eden? In, you got the tree of life, you have the bread of presence, you have the ark, you have God's command. But who's not there? Adam. Where's Adam? <laughs> He's Aaron. He's Aaron in this divine drama or skit that's being put on, and he's starting in the garden, but he's, he's different than the first Adam because he's not bringing sin. He's going to bring life out to his household rather than death. And he's going to, he brings it inside the veil. We'll pick it up in verse 13. And he shall put the incense on the fire before Yahweh, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, so that he will not die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So you see this picture of Adam that he's going to do something different than the first Adam. He's going to act in such a way that he won't die. So that he won't be a representative into death, but into life. It's like, well, how can he do that? The mercy seat, which is synonymous with atonement. Uh, atonement is how people can be restored to rest. Atonement is how people can be brought from death to life. And what happens with this next Adam in the Bible, which is, the, that's the whole point with the mountain men. You know, the mountain men, they're, they're the Adam guys until we get to the last Adam that accomplishes everything that they pictured. And Aaron here is an Adam, is the, the minister of God's mercy, the minister of God's atonement, which comes from the east side out. So it's like, well, how, how do people come go west into to God's presence? Well, it's by 
Adam moving east and pulling everybody in by making atonement for them and bringing life to them because they can't bring themselves from death to life. Life has to come to them and be given to them. Why does it mention that he has to sprinkle the blood seven times? That's a reminder that this is the way back to God's seventh day. This is the way back to God's rest, and it's by that which is in the west, moving east. You need to think about this as the Son of Man who comes to seek and save that which was lost. That's what's happening in this VBS skit being put on for the sons of Israel at the beginning of the year. Picking up in verse 15, as the drama continues, it says, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. So now he's prepared to be the priest that they need, and now he has to atone for the sins of the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And he shall sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place. So there, you see here in the day of atonements, there's an atonement for the priest, there's an atonement for the place. Well, why is there an atonement for the place? Verse 16 says, because of the uncleanness of the sons of Israel. Because unclean people like Nadab and Abihu try to go in and they desecrate the place by their sinful presence and disobedience. So who can ascend back into the presence of God? Well, the one who's been made holy and clean by atonement. The uncleanness of the sons of Israel, you remember last week when we talked about this, uncleanness is the things of the disorder of this life. So you think, well, it's like, well, what is some of the uncleanness of this place that's been disordered? Thorns and thistles because of the disorder of Adam. Those sort of things can't go back into the clean, holy order of what things are supposed to be like in God's presence, where there is no more disorder, there is no effects of sin in the place where God is worshipped. So there's, you see that God's salvation is a cosmic salvation. He doesn't just redeem people and just leave them stuck in the thorns and thistles place. Uh, it's going to involve getting rid of the thorns and the thistles as well. God's redemption is a cosmic redemption which this place, this tabernacle, is more than just a picture of Eden. It's a, it's a picture of the entire planet. And saying this is what everything is going to be restored to ultimately. And you're not allowed to bring disorder into God's order and live. Continue on in verse 16. It says, well, why shall atonement be made for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the sons of Israel who can't bring in the uncleanness of Adam back into the garden. It says, well, because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins, 
because of their making a breach in their relationship with God in regard to not keeping his standard and what he commanded. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And now when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel, which is, this is this idea of what I referred to as tabernacle takeover, where the tabernacle starts taking over everything little by little, where you see the salvation comes out of the tabernacle to Aaron, to his household, and then out to Israel, which was a picture of how God's salvation was always meant to extend to the ends of the earth. And it would begin with Israel, and it would move out to the Gentiles as well. Atonement is something that moves the atonement seat, the mercy seat, moves out of the tabernacle to bring others into it. Verse 18, then he shall go out to the altar that is before Yahweh and make atonement for it. He says everything on the planet has to be atoned for and brought back into God's order. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times, resembling God's rest, and cleanse it representing everything back into a condition of order and set apart as holy in a status which is of life rather than death. And it's set apart as holy from the uncleanness, from the disorder and death of the sons of Israel. And when he finishes making atonement for the holy place, and the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring near the live goat. So this, this is the get-in goat that he's bringing here. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat. So what he's showing here is that what the priest does is he transfers sins from one party to another We'll talk more about that in just a second. But, and, he said, and here's what he does. He confesses over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. So you see what God is doing is he's saying, I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. He says, and he shall lay them on the head of the goat and Send it out into the wilderness. So this is get out goat. Send it out into the wilderness by the hand of a man ready to do this. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an isolated land. And he shall send out the goat into the wilderness. So here we're seeing the combination of the picture of uh, get in goat, get out goat. Far goat and and, uh, near goat. And it's answering a tension that was brought up. Back in Exodus 34, when God reveals his glory and his name to Moses, he says he's a a God who forgives sin, iniquity, and transgression, but he'll by no means clear the guilty. So at that point in the Bible, 
We know that he does that, but we don't know how it works. So now he's explaining that. The way that God can justly forgive by punishing the guilty, but also forgive people to bring them into his dwelling place is by a substitute satisfying the judgment that's deserved. So the Day of Atonement is a judgment day. It's God carrying out a just judgment of sin, but what he's teaching the people is that just judgment can fall on somebody else. It's either going to fall on you or a substitute. If it falls on you, then you're get out goat and you're gone. But if it falls on another, you have the get in goat who brings you in, which is combined with the picture of the high priest and the two goats of the one sin offering. We learn here that God will provide a substitute to satisfy his justice and justify sinful man. You see, what he's going to do is he's going to carry out a penalty for sin and get rid of it, but he's also going to purify a person and, oh, I didn't, we didn't bring in all of this other stuff in my picture with righteousness. He's going to count them righteous by faith, what you read about Abraham in Genesis 15. Because when you hear Noah was a righteous man, it's like, well, how does that work? Because did his righteousness come from himself and that's why God picked him? Or did his righteousness come from somewhere else? You know, enter Abraham, the man of faith. Say, oh, the righteousness is by faith. Abraham had faith in God, and Yahweh counted that to him as righteousness. It's like, well, but how can a sinful man have that kind of relationship with God? In comes the instructor. And he teaches that it's by atonement that starts here and it goes out here to bring people back in here. So this is that concept where we say, you know, the, the just, those who are justified by God's atonement, they, they live by faith in that atonement. So the righteous live by faith that it is God's substitute atonement that gives them their counted righteousness and the ability to live out righteousness. And you see how that concept all connects together? Righteousness is by faith in God's substitute sacrifice. And that's why this is pinnacle in Leviticus 16 because now you have the, a full gospel picture and you just need it to be carried out. And they're looking forward to an Adam who can do this, uh, a high priest who can accomplish this, uh, a sacrifice who is actually these things. That's not just a, a teaching model, but the reality of it, not just a shadow of what's to come, but the substance. This has uh, echoes of the almost sacrifice of Isaac when God saw a need and he provided a substitute to defeat the death problem, which when you think about this in parallel to Adam, 
he didn't do that. And you think about this drama, what the people are doing is when they're seeing all of this happen, they're remembering the first Adam while they're looking forward to the last Adam. And what you're seeing in the teaching model here is that they're offering sacrifices for sin. Now, did any of these animals ever accomplish the forgiveness of any sin for anybody ever? No, why, why not? Why couldn't animal sacrifices atone for their sins? Yeah, they're just the model, but you can think about this going back to Adam when he didn't have a helper that was suitable for him in the animals. He didn't have one that, that matched him. But neither does man have a sacrifice suitable for him in animals. Uh, man and animals are different kinds. They're different categories. An, an animal can't pay for the sins of a man. Uh, a man doesn't need an animal in his place. He needs a man that's a suitable sacrifice to redeem him, which ties into the slavery laws and why uh, a slave had to, could be redeemed by another man in the family. And ultimately, we know that what this, the kind of sacrifice we need is, is a God-man mediator. You know how we had talked about this tabernacle worship as a gospel tract where tabernacle teaches us God is holy, and then Israel outside of the tabernacle court teaches us man is sinful and how the priesthood and the sacrifices teach that man needs a God-man mediator because God has to do it and he's the one who said, you know, I, I will make you holy, but we also have to have a like-for-like like sacrifice, which is man. So the only one who can truly mediate for us and save us must be a God-man mediator. Those things have to be combined in a person for it to be the right atoning sacrifice. Now you know that the first Adam, he, he failed to cleanse the bride which was from his side with the water of the word. He was standing there when the serpent was tempting his wife and his wife didn't give the right Bible answer to the serpent, which is you just, you don't talk to serpents. Talking serpents just... Honey, we got to go. This is not a good idea. But he's just standing there, and he actually knew you know, what the living water of the word was that he was to live by, that she was to be washed with. He said, honey, you actually quoted God wrong. You weren't here when he said that. I was the only one around. So I love you. Bless your heart. But this is what he actually said. That's not what happened, as we know. He didn't, he didn't wash his, the bride from his side with the water of the word. He didn't set her apart as holy. But now think about that in comparison to the last Adam, where he, he cleanses his bride from his wounded side. You know, he sacrifices himself to bring the cleansing that his bride, the church, would need, and it's with a word of atonement. It's by atoning for her that he sets her apart as holy and reestablishes that relationship through covenant.
Now, the reality of this drama that's being acted out by Aaron, when you come to verse 23, I want you to see what he uh, has to do with the suit that he would wear when he would carry out this drama. Verse 23, it says, Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy places, and shall leave them there. And so, well, why did he have to take off these clothes that he enacted this teaching model of atonement? Because this task was too big for his britches. This is something that he couldn't accomplish, and he needed to be reminded of that. And for everybody to see, Aaron isn't the last Adam. He teaches us about him, but he's not him. And to emphasize that, verse 24, it says, He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place, and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people. So you see here as the priest, he's offering the, the dedication, ascension offering you know, for himself and with the people because now they have fellowship together and being brought to ascend up God's mountain together to be dedicated to him forever. It says, you know, doing this, the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. So this atonement is more than just forgiveness. It's not just forgiveness, it's also new life. It's also the hope of living in a new place and everything being reset, everything in creation being reset into God's rest. Everything from the, you know, the stuff in the tabernacle, the stuff out of the tabernacle, you have you know, priest, place, people, all holy all atoned for, all brought together. Verse 25 says, Then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. Who remembers what the significance of the, the fat was in the burnt offering? It's the best part. See, now that God has given you, you know, his best to bring you back into his best and his rest, your life is about enjoying giving the best back to him. You see, God, you provided this, and the way that you, you worship God and fellowship with him is by giving him thanks, by giving back what he gave to you, and you give him the best. And the one who sent out the goat out as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Because remember, this was the goat. This was the get out goat. This is the sin gets out. Get out. If you touch that thing, you need to be cleaned off and separated from that. Then afterwards, he shall come into the camp, but the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp. So. Can you think of a sin offering later in the Bible that's brought outside the camp on another day of atonement that cleanses the people to bring them into the presence of God? Christ, yeah. He was a sin offering. He, he died outside of the camp. 
sin. This is the sin offering. This is what the whole drama was about. This is what the whole priesthood teaching model of the sacrifices was all about. Uh, he is that. And when he comes, he sends out all the worst. He sends out the, the get out goat so that he can bring people in. So you see that the way that this works is that the merciful high priest starts in the presence of God and he descends to the people outside of the camp to purify them so that they can come back in, but he also sends all of their sin that way. How far east do you think he sends it from west? As far as the east is from the west. Yeah, that's the point of that Psalm 103.12. Psalm 103.12. You can put a star next to that one. Yeah, he cast our, our sins as far as the east is from the west. And in Micah, when it talks about our sins being thrown into the bottom of the ocean, that's the, that's the place of death or the place of Sheol, which the deeps and the waters represent throughout Scripture, that they're never to be seen again. And with this sacrifice, we see they burn their hides, their flesh, the refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and clothes and bathe his body with water. And afterward, he shall come into the camp. Saying, so you see, I think this is that whole concept of, you know, there's a high priest who descends the mountain and he redeems a people to bring them to himself so that they ascend with him in the burnt ascension offering. Now, this teaching model is a day of days teaching about the priest of priest. See this picking up in verse 29. It says, and this shall be a perpetual statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the sojourner who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean. So here that is a, this is a future promise. It says you'll be clean from all your sins before Yahweh, which I forgot to mention this. You remember all the other offerings were only for unintentional sins. Uh, there was no offering that you could bring that uh, would deal with intentional sins which is a problem because it's like you know that you've sinned on purpose and there's nothing that you can offer in the teaching model for those sins. So how does that work? There has to be a high priest who offers himself as a perfect sacrifice for your intentional sins. So that's where this word all becomes really important because it doesn't say for your unintentional sins. It says all your sins, intentional and unintentional but the intentional ones can, it's all pushing toward you need this greater high priest than Aaron and you need the new covenant ultimately where it's ratified in the blood of that priest being the sacrifice. In verse 31 it says, it is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. It is the Sabbath of Sabbaths. 
that you may humble your souls. It is a perpetual statute. Well, how do you humble yourselves? You don't work for it. You rest in it. It's God's work and that he saves you. You don't say, well, maybe Nadab and Abihu kind of messed it up, but we're going to try harder. We're going to try better and get ourselves in there somehow. God says, it's not by your work and your ways that it's by my work. You just need to rest in my work. The point of the Sabbath is to teach you that you need my rest. Stop trying to work for it. Stop trying to earn it. Stop you know, shouldering the burden of, well, I don't feel like I'm doing enough. I don't feel like I'm offering enough sacrifices to be in God's presence. What he's saying is, Stop looking at yourself and your performance and look at the the performance of the high priest and what he does. And when when he carries out his day of atonement, what does Jesus say when it's completed? It is finished. He's echoing Genesis 2-3. God's works were finished before the foundation of the world. It was always his plan to, to have this Adam, this last Adam, this high priest who would come out into the camp to atone for his people, to bring them into his rest. So he says, humble your souls and trust in God's rest. It's not something that you can earn. It's something that you don't deserve, but God graciously does for you, which is why we call the atonement seat the mercy seat, because he shows mercy in the action that's carried out from that seat. And, and not doing any work on it, which is not non-activity, you can see that. It's not that they were just flopped out their lawn chairs by their tent and just sat there and watched this whole thing. You know, they were participants. They were involved. And this was something that would extend to the native or the sojourner who was among them, which was shown this is a gospel tract for the nations. This isn't just for you guys to just make a little camp here and stay here by yourselves and enjoy what's happening. This is for you to go out. Uh, seed isn't meant to be gathered in just one spot. The seed is meant to be scattered so that there can be a fruitful, multiplied harvest throughout the ends of the earth. Picking up in verse 32, it says, So the priest who is anointed and ordained to minister as a priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a perpetual statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as Yahweh had commanded Moses, so he did. This is how everything gets reset on teaching about a day of atonement that's going to happen in the future. And it looks back in memory of the first Adam's failure and it looks forward in faith at the last Adam's Victory. Atonement is at the heart of the Torah, of the book of Leviticus, of the prophets in Isaiah. 
It's at the heart of the entire New Testament. It is at the heart of creation existence. Everything in creation needs this atonement so that everything is brought back in to God's rest, which again, we, you read about all of that in Romans 8, which last week we talked about how that's a, the concept that was being pointed forward to and all of the cleansing laws, that it was to be looking forward to glorification when the former things are no more, when there's no more disease, but there's only life. This atonement you know, explains the separation between holy God and sinful man and how we're reconciled only by what God provides. We're reconciled only by God's work, only by a God-man mediator who is high priest, sacrifice, and last Adam, who we know is Christ Jesus. And on his day of atonement, he, he resets everything into a new system, which we refer to as the new covenant. You see, he's, he's ordained as high priest at the cross and brings us into a new worship system. And in seeing this contrast, we're going to end in reading Hebrews 9, 1 to 14 together if you want to turn there. This is Hebrews 9, 1 to 14, and we'll close in reading this text. Now, even the first covenant had requirements of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the first part in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, which is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded in the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. This is like a, a normal sort of preacher guy here preaching this. So we don't have time for this, but we've got to move on. Next thing, verse 6. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the first part of the tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is indicating this, that the way into the holy places has not yet been manifested while that first part of the tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, requirements for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, 
he entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's close in prayer there and you have any questions, you'll just have to ask me afterwards. Our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our High Priest, from our sin and send our sins as far as the east is from the west, never to be seen again, that the entire record of all of our sins has been canceled, has been justly paid for in your death, and we are no longer known as sinners but as saints, and we pray that you would help us to live like what you have made us until the day that we were resurrected for the reality of our holy status to be realized in you forever and ever. May we be about the mission of making your gospel atonement made known to the nations. Amen.